All right, welcome to the Uptime Win Energy Podcast. Big week this week, a lot of news on the show. Uh, so we're going to talk about Vesta's uh, wind turbine orders dropping in Q2 as compared to last year and uh, why some of the reasons that may be. Also going to visit France uh, to nationalize EDF completely this time. And Nordex closes its last blade plant in Germany and moves everything to India. And then we talk about the EU's controversial decision to declare gas and nuclear investments as green. So in, uh, in efforts as well for the U.S. to hit 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, we're going to talk about some new concepts in Jones Act compliant vessels uh, that are going to be hopefully built here in the U.S. soon. And then also staying on that uh, same trend of vessels, uh, methanol starting to win the hydrogen shipping race um, to lower emissions globally for our shipping. So hold on tight. It's a packed show. We'll be back after the music. All right, guys, Vestas orders and Nordics orders, some really interesting uh, developments there. Vestas publishes every quarter their sales numbers because they're a publicly traded company, and so does Nordex. But Vestas actually describes every single order that they have. It's really interesting on the website. So in, in Q2 uh, of 2022, this, this last quarter, they had roughly 1,700 megawatts sold. And that's down quite a bit from where Vestas has been. In Q1, they had 2,900 megawatts sold. And looking back one year ago, Vestas had orders of almost 5,300 megawatts. So year on year, like quarter to quarter, Q2 2021 to Q2 2022, their sales are down about 66%. That's a big drop for such a large company. And it, it seems very odd because I know the the Vestas sales group is extremely aggressive, and if you watch the news enough, you, you'll notice that they're they are everywhere, <laughs> all across the planet. And one of the key pieces, and I wonder if this is what's driving it, is that only twenty percent of the orders were in the U.S. About three hundred and fifty megawatts was in the U.S. And we have seen the onshore wind purchases and and agreements in the U.S. are just are going to plummet. The predictions in twenty twenty three are totally minuscule compared to where we were. And Nordex has a, a sort of a similar situation. Even though Nordex uh, sales rose a little bit, they, they sold 1,800 megawatts in Q2 this year versus 1.5 last year. Uh, the distribution of sales is, is fascinating. Uh, Nordex tends to sell mostly in Europe, about 60% to Europe, about 30% in Latin America. That's 90% total. And then the remaining 10% is in North America. So again, North America, I, I would assume, Joel, it's not Canada. It's mostly, it's mostly the states. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. So they say that Nordex's strongest markets are Germany, Poland, and Spain. And again, United States is not in that mix. So it makes you wonder if some of the problems that the wind turbine companies are having is just that the U.S. market on onshore wind is plummeting. Does that make sense? I think it does, and I think you can point to PTC, the moonlighting of PTC come December. I mean, you follow the money yep. down. Uh, McDonald's can sell as many cheeseburgers as they want, but if the general public doesn't have any cash, you're not going to buy them, right? So, right. You, if you don't, if there's not a, a movement for the developers to want to put money in, um, and it ties to PTC, if they can't make the money back, if it's not financially feasible, then it's not going to be there. So PTC ended at the end of 2021, and there's been a lot of projects that got started in 2021 that are running through now, and it'll probably finish right. in 2023, some of them, right? Yeah. Uh, and there, there is a bill in Congress, I, I was looking this past week, there's a bill in Congress that would extend PTC, but it doesn't look like it's going anywhere, no, which it, is really odd. So the, the first iteration, would you, would, yeah. I think it was the first iteration of Biden's, like the, the Biden administration right now, their Build Back Better or whatever. The first iteration had a big chunk of money set aside for PTC. And then there was like some development stuff, kind of like we talked about with the Defense uh, Production Act as well. Uh, there was a big chunk of money set aside for it, but all that kind of got, they, they were, ear, you know, everything's earmarked nowadays. Those earmarks got, right. the page got torn off when that got passed through. So um, yeah, there's some stuff sitting there, but you're not hearing much about it. It was really exciting last 
I don't remember when it was. I think it was in December, November, when all that was sitting in the news and it was, oh, that's all this money's going to come into green energy. And then it kind of got melted away. Um, so yeah, I think that the, right. you know, it's a big driver of it, um, that it's dropping here. Um, you know, some of it, I, I, talking to some of my, uh, friends in Europe as well as the, uh, on the developer side, some of the regulatory environment over there is getting kind of hard to get past, right? There's some, some yeah. very difficult things over there. So, um, as the regulatory environment changes financially down and, and roadblock up, this is what you see. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if we're mostly tapped out on new wind development, onshore wind development in the States, and it's all going to move, the vast majority of it's going to move offshore, but we're still at least two to three years away from that. It, it's just an interesting development to keep our eyes on, and I'm going to watch it as <laughs> as we go through Q3. And, and as part of this uh, you know, decline in, in onshore wind, Nordex is, is closing its last blade plant in Germany and moving it to India. So it announced it would shut down its Rostock uh, factory in June, and it has about 600 employees. Now, they're going to continue to manufacture nacelles and hubs and drivetrains, but the the Blades factory, or at least the Blade portion of it, could make a maximum uh, basically rotor diameter of 150 meters. So that's, what is that, 70-odd meter blade, 69-meter blade, something like that, was a limit for the size in that factory. And I, I guess they figured it's not worth making the investment in Germany. We can open uh, or have a plant in India. It's easier to make bigger blades down in India. And away they went. And Rosemary, is this going to be happening more and more? And is it just the size of the blades that are such a constraint that it makes sense to make them somewhere else? No, I think it's a bunch of reasons. And it's been happening for a while. Nordex definitely aren't the the first. I mean, um, yeah, Enercon has already moved a lot of their manufacturing away from Germany. And, um, well, um, Wind Power uh, closed down their last real real factory in Denmark some time ago. I don't think that there's much manufacturing of, of blades from other manufacturers in Denmark anymore either. Um, and it, uh, my understanding is it's from two two causes. The first is, you know, obviously the cost of labor is um, can be cheaper in other regions, but I think probably even the more sure. significant thing is where they're selling the blades. And, you know, originally all those German manufacturers were really focused on the German market. And I know Enercon especially was like nearly all of their sales went to Germany. And it seemed to me like there was a big controversy when they were closing down some of their factories because, um, you know, it was a, such a major employer in the, the region where Enercon is based. And so there was like a lot of... Um, political uh, intervention to try and get them to stay. And um, it seemed to me at the time that Enercon had been a bit short-sighted in um, putting so many eggs in the in the Germany basket. Um, and I think, yeah, in general, German manufacturers, European manufacturers had been really domestic focused and those that didn't get in early on, you know, expanding outwards and also expanding their manufacturing outwards, suffered when you know the sentiment around wind in germany went really like jumped off a <laughs> off a cliff at one point wind energy was like a dirty yeah. word in in germany i don't i haven't been there in a few years so i don't know how they are feeling now but in general people don't want more onshore wind in in germany is my yeah what i've noticed and so if you want to continue making and selling wind turbines you need to look further further afield and that likely means building the turbines further afield as well. I got a one one thought wow. here. Um, do you think that uh, so right now we're two two and a half years post start of COVID. So when that happened, of course, companies shut down, everybody went home, the, the world stopped, um, you had to stare at your loved ones and didn't get to escape them, whichever it was. But that, do you think that some of this down, how, how do I how should I explain it? The downfall in orders is tied to the development cycle from that six months of when the world kind of shut down. Does that make sense? Does that timeline line up? Two years ago, all the people that were looking at developing and doing site studies and all that stuff didn't work for six months or, or nine months. or <laughs> And and now uh, we're seeing two years later, 
the residual of that or no? I don't see that specifically, especially because it's such a long-term trend that started way before COVID. But I think what probably does factor into it is the um, supply chain issues that were definitely, um, you know, kickstarted uh, pretty aggressively by by COVID um, and continue now. So I assume that people have to be a bit more picky about which projects they can support now. Um, yeah, so I think that that's, that's probably part of it. One of the interesting uh, pieces of data to pop out in the last week or so is the CO2 emissions over COVID. And I, there's a, I think it was a UN study that I saw this week talking about the different industries and how COVID drove the amount of CO2 emissions. And it's, if you look at different industries like airline versus industry versus residential, uh, you see dramatically different responses. And if you look at it country by country, you see dramatically different responses where China was down a relatively short amount of time and then came back up to more than full capacity. And the rest of the rest of the world sort of didn't do that. And, and we saw big reductions in CO2, almost 10% plus in some cases of CO2 emissions. So there is a there is a drag effect, I think, on Europe from COVID versus China, maybe even in India. Uh, what the effect of that's going to be long term, though, I don't know. I, I, I do see, crazily enough, why are we building towers and nacelles and generators in Germany? And the most probably the most complex piece, what I would consider the most complex piece, the blades are going to India. It just seems all backwards and you got to ship them all the way back. I, there's a big, huge wind market in India. I, everybody agrees with that. And it's they can do it on the shoreline, which you can put on a ship and go anywhere, I suppose. But it just seems like somehow the math doesn't work out. That's what it seems to me. But I guess we're going to have to just watch it and see it progresses because wind isn't going away. It's just a question of where it's shifting to. And speaking of shifting, <laughs> France is going to nationalize or renationalize because they... EDF, and EDF is the, the big electrical power generator for France and also is a, a global player in the renewables market. And so France is to renationalize uh, the giant EDF in response to the energy crisis, says its prime minister, uh, Elizabeth Bourne. Uh, quote, we must have full control over our electricity production and performance, Bourne told Parliament. Now, uh, France already owned 85% of EDF. Uh, which is one of the world's largest electricity producers. So they're going to basically buy the last 15%. Uh, and as Rosemary was describing before we started recording today, there's a lot of problems with an EDF in terms of managing the older equipment, mostly nuclear, I guess, and then building new nuclear and some other projects that are just delayed. So they're in this real crunch where they have older projects that are that need to get offline or refurbished that are not there. And it's leading to rising electricity rates and a, and a really stressful time already uh, with electricity prices across the world going up. Uh, there's a big concern. Uh, if I was a politician in France, I'd be super concerned about it. And I, they clearly are. Uh, but Rosemary, it seems like there's the other side of this is uh, if France is going to nationalize it, one of the things they, they may not do is stick to their climate goals. Uh, they, in order to lower the price of electricity, especially this upcoming winter, I would expect they're going to get a little bit dirtier to do that. Do you think that's going to happen over the next couple of months? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the nationalisation is is maybe a, a second issue. I think a really big issue with EDF is just how terribly their reactors have all been performing over the last year or so, and they're projected to get worse in the future. I think currently, like less than fifty, they've got at less than fifty percent capacity, just because they had some hmm. scheduled maintenance that turned out to be a lot harder than they they thought and it's taking a lot longer and then they've had some unscheduled maintenance as well i mean it's a really aging fleet of nuclear reactors and i think everybody wants them to take the safety seriously more se more seriously <laughs> targets and even you know even i would agree with that that the safety of nuclear power plants is is the most important thing um so yeah, I think already we've seen that France's electricity mix probably get 
less clean because they have to import a lot from um yeah from elsewhere you think they're going to put on more natural gas they don't really have any coal factories are they going to add natural gas to the mix just to to get them through the winter um i'm not sure they're pretty ideologically committed to nuclear in france as far as i can tell like the politicians at at least like i know a lot of french people who are really anti-nuclear but um, I think as like if you to lump everyone together, including the politicians and the people running the energy system over there, I think that they, they they're really committed to nuclear. And I, I know that they're going to build some more reactors. And, uh, you know, obviously it seems like 10 years ago would have been a better, better time to start some of those projects because, you know, they've ended up with uh-huh. only really old reactors right now. And it takes a long time to get a new one up. But definitely we're starting to see them pulling in, um, you, you know, they're connected to the rest of Europe. So um, they're pulling in um, right. energy from other sources to fill the gaps. And it is probably getting more dirty because France's grid is, is quite clean, um, you know, relatively speaking, because they've got so much nuclear. There's not a lot of uh, emissions is. from nuclear. Um, yeah, whether we want to call that <laughs> clean or green or whatever, that's a that's a topic for I think a little bit later in the in the episode. But Glow, glowing, maybe <laughs> glowing energy. Yeah, fluorescent, <laughs> fluorescent green. Um, but I think definitely it's getting more expensive. That like if you look at the 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 price that people are paying in France, it, it's high because you know they're relying on um, yeah grabbing it from other markets who are also struggling with you know maybe not shortfalls, but definitely they're feeling feeling right. the pinch. So it's not an ideal situation yeah. for them to be in. Yeah, let alone bringing those gas plants online, the gas pinch over there, and with the crisis going on in Ukraine and whatnot. Uh... All of Europe is feeling that. Yeah, building new new gas power plants doesn't seem yeah, like it's... a ticket to cheap energy prices right now, does it? <laughs> no. no. There really is no cheap energy right now, right? The, the uh, Six months ago, a year ago, there was all kinds of cheap energy around, and everything has skyrocketed up, and it doesn't look like it's, it's price stabilized. It is coming down a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but it hasn't price stabilized yet. There's more turmoil to come and when the demand gets high yeah exactly which it's is going to be in the winter time then we're, we're really going to be in some interesting times because it feels like the world is sort of destabilized in the last six weeks weirdly enough it, it has this sort of 1980s feel to it all of a sudden and you guys may not have been alive or cognizant back then but i sure was and it definitely has that feel of europe is is in a little bit of turmoil right now, and that usually means America is going to be in turmoil with it. We'll see how it plays out, but I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of close connections between the United States and Europe, and uh, this latest thing from the EU Parliament is really going to uh, kick that off nicely. So we're going to take a quick break right here, and when we get back, we're going to have Rosemary... I'm going to set the soccer ball, the cricket ball, whatever they use in Australia uh, for Rosemary to kick or throw at. Because we'll talk about EU Parliament and they decided that gas and nuclear are green investments. So we'll be right back. Get the latest on wind industry news, business and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. All right, we're back, Rosemary. And here we go. The EU Parliament this week declares gas and nuclear investments as green. So there's a couple of votes in the EU Parliament, and this is a, a preliminary vote. This isn't. I don't think this is the final vote yet. They still have a, a little bit to go, but it looks like it's 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 being greenlit, so to speak, this new proposal. Uh, so the new rules will add natural gas and nuclear power plants to the EU taxonomy. Rule book in twenty from twenty twenty three, which enables investors to label and market investments as green. So you can uh, have your LNG power plant have the green label on it, uh, and this is causing a lot of consternation. And I think what's driving it is it's clearly what's happening in the Ukraine. So there's a huge debate about it in Europe and the rest of the world. By the way, uh, I saw Greta Thunberg tweet about it pretty much anybody on the environmental side is really upset with this what are your thoughts yeah lots of lots of thoughts so i mean i guess the first thing is does it 
matter you know if people can call it a green investment it's kind of a you know such a a vague term anyway isn't it green so i'm not sure the actual um like implications of it that doesn't sound to me like they're you know getting european funding to build gas plants under you know instead of that money going to a wind farm or a, a solar farm um or a battery project so maybe it's it's not such a huge deal but certainly, I mean, on the face of it, it's just absolutely ridiculous to call to call gas a, a green investment. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of emissions from gas and it seems like every week there's a new study that shows that methane leakage from the you know gas supply chain is much worse than thought. And, you know, methane is such a, a potent greenhouse gas. It's, you know, 20 to 100 times more um has more warming impact than carbon dioxide and the hit is really early with methane. So, you know, given that we're trying to, you know, really pull down, um, you know, emissions as fast as possible, it makes sense to be going hard on getting rid of um, methane, not expanding it. Um, yeah, so it's it's confusing in that sense and I just can't understand why we even need a bunch of European politicians to or bureaucrats to decide what's a green investment or not because shouldn't you just have like an emissions intensity and that tells you whether it's it's green or not you know they should have just set a number that you know below this that's a yeah that's a a green investment and above it, it it's not so you know I don't have a real problem with nuclear being on the list because you know it doesn't um cause a lot of emissions and i also don't have a problem with gas being seen as a enabling technology for the energy transition and i mean emphasis on the transition part of that because it is such a flexible um, technology so it can really nicely support the rollout of more renewables without causing you know blackouts and um you know yeah, just just making right. making things smoother while we figure out how about how bad dunkel flouters are we going to get? You know, like uh, when there's a period with no wind and no sun, y- you can kind of like look at the. Is, is that not a term you've heard before, <laughs> Alan? You look confused. No, I, I had no idea what that word was. <laughs> dunkel dunkel flouter. You need to you need to add it to your uh, vocabulary. It's one of those fantastic German words where you know it's it's one one word, but they um it, but it, it describes a whole concept. So it's a concept of when there's no no wind and no sun and the literal english translation would be something like the dark lull or dark doldrums people sometimes call it um and yeah that's at the moment that's kind of like a a thing a lot of people have in their mind a big big fear um you can look at the statistics of climate statistics you know in the past um and have a a sense of how often this is going to happen but i think um yeah, this is going to be one of the biggest challenges of moving to an all-variable renewables grid. And if we have some gas left in the system, then that will help you, you know, ride through any dunkelflauses that we experience before we've totally figured out this, um, you know, variable renewables grid. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's good to keep gas in the, the system and keep that flexibility there. It makes the rest of the energy transition much, much easier. So I'm um, you know, I'm a bit different to some of the climate activists like um, Greta Thunberg and Greenpeace and, you know, all these people that have um, that are just 100% opposed to, to gas. I don't see it that way, but I wish we would just focus on the emissions intensity. And nuclear. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with nuclear if people think that it's, um, you know, going to be fast enough and cheap enough to, you know, way to add um, generation, clean generation to their, their mix, then, then go for it. Um, yeah. But, um, but won't this open up investment money for nuclear? In, in a sense, if it if they, it sounds like this is a tax a tax thing, right? So, if it, it reduces the tax burden on investments into nuclear, wouldn't you think it would at least spur more development in Europe for nuclear? Because there, there hasn't been a lot of huge advancements in nuclear reactors in fifty odd years. There's, there's talks of you know, about Generation Four and the new technology, recycling the previously used radioactive material and these new generators, all that discussion happens, but there hasn't been any action on it. Does this now crack that open and say, okay, let's look at nuclear like France has been? Yeah, I, I think there's a really big price price difference um, 
is the reason why we haven't seen a lot of new nuclear projects, especially not ones that are unsubsidized um, substantially by governments. And I've got no problem if, um, yeah, that we make developing nuclear a little bit more attractive. It is a, you know, it is low emissions technology, and uh, I'm happy to see see more of it where where people want it around. <laughs> what is it? Do Do you know so Joel, Rosemary? I was gonna say, do you, Do you know just off the top of your head? And this is just a curiosity mm. point, but well, like per megawatt, how does it compare to? How does nuclear compare to wind for a new installation? Is it Is it a an order of magnitude, or is it two or three times? Or I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty clean, right? There's no. You don't get carbon dioxide when the nuclear reaction happens. So it's similar to renewables in the sense that the emissions come from the supply chain, um, basically. And right. I guess also there's right. you know some processing of um, um, waste, nuclear waste as well right. that would have some emissions. But yeah, I mean, yeah. to me, it's, it's roughly similar. I wouldn't call it renewable because it's not renewable, but I'm happy to call it clean. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking mm. is, is the, the cost of new installations. Is the cost of new installations? Oh, it's is much. it two or three times? Oh, the, let me look. Or is it a chart. more order I, magnitude? I did a video on it. You can you can check out my, my video on <laughs> levelized cost of energy. Um, all right, so I looked up the um, latest Lazard levelized cost of energy comparisons. That's version fourteen, and they've got nuclear is for new build nuclear. It's between one twenty nine and one ninety eight dollars per um, megawatt hour. Megawatt. Yeah, and wow. then um, solar, yeah, depending on the kind, is between uh, twenty nine, well, twenty nine to forty two for utility scale, and a bit right. higher for other kinds. Um, and then wind, uh, they haven't actually got it separated off into on and offshore yet in this version. It's between twenty six and fifty four. So yeah, it's not an order of magnitude, but it's so it's, it's a lot a lot it's different. Four or five times, yeah. Yeah. Oh, double. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, way yeah. more than offshore wind. Double. Yeah, the LCOE of offshore wind is pretty high. Oh yeah, actually, I think right they do now, have it eighty six dollars yeah. for offshore. Maybe that's what that that point is. Um, yeah, it's 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 fairly high, so that would make sense. So nuclear is probably the most expensive. Of yeah, all there's of not them. even any overlap between um, offshore and, and nuclear. But for um, uh, existing nuclear that's already depreciated, then that's um, they've got twenty nine dollars right. for that. So that is competitive. So is the- key then keeping the plants open that you have well I mean, germany just keeps talking about closing plants i know france yeah. is trying to refurbish plants in the united states we're closing plants is well, the key the, to keep the energy prices low is to keep those running yeah but it's not they just did that in california i think newsom newsom came back and was like this nuclear plant we were going to close now we're going to keep it back online because they have to mm. I think they have. Yeah, to, it's not easy yeah. for Germany though, because that was something that I was going on about early in this, um, you know, gas price crisis. Was you know why is Germany closing their their nuclear power plants? They should stop it, but um, it's not easy for them to do that because they have known for you know like ten years plus that they're going to be phasing out, closing them around now. There's a lot of maintenance that didn't happen, safety checks that didn't happen over the last decade that would need to be done now if they were going to keep it open. So mm-hmm. it's not like you mm-hmm. can't just say, okay, we're going to close it in six months and we won't now. It would be like, okay, in six months we'll launch a two-year campaign to make sure that this thing is still safe to to run Um to continue and by then you know you could probably actually have a bunch of extra wind and solar and transmissions projects in the ground so um yeah i think in germany's case it's if it happened you know five years ago they they may well have made that decision but i i understand that it's too late now for germany to just decide to extend the operation oh come on i mean no one wants to see someone just you know like ah we didn't check the safety of this nuclear power plant but we assume it's okay let her run <laughs> hey man that it's happens in wind Simpson at the console <laughs> yeah <laughs> that happens in wind all the time right like we as at wind power lab we've looked yes. at some you know for for due diligence for for m&a stuff people buying wind farms and the people who owned them before were like well they're gonna go decommission uh, you know 2022 so for the last seven years we didn't touch the blades and now a new person's going to buy them and it's like whoa look at these blades <laughs> looks like nobody's on any maintenance they haven't <laughs> they decided not to it was better for roi to say we're going to take them down in 2022 but now you want them you're gonna it's going to be a pretty penny to <laughs> get those uh, things back up and running smoothly but as rosemary always says it's relative to what right and yeah. if refurbing or re-inspecting <laughs> 
doing the maintenance on an existing nuclear facility is, has got to be less money than building new. Has yeah. to be. But it's not just the money; it's the so it's the it time makes sense to do that. as well. It, it's the, the time that it takes for that. Yeah. So it's not actually a solution to the current crisis because it's still going to be years before you can um, actually take advantage of of this, you know, lifetime extension of your nuclear power plant. Acid. But if you declare gas as being green, that gives you the time to well, do that. Well, it turns out that solving climate change is really easy. If all you've got to do <laughs> is just say gas is green now, um, petrol, gasoline cars are See? green now. Um, yeah. yeah. Problem solved. 747s are, are green now. It's, yeah. Just, that's all you need to do. Just designate I that. just fix the exactly. energy problem. Exactly. Designate it all green and we've made so much progress. Wow. <laughs> Lightning is an act of God. But lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. All right, there is a, a, a group down in Houston, a startup, basically, uh, called Blue Tech Industries. And I'll spell it out because it's not like you would assume it is. And I've seen it spelled two different ways, actually. Uh, B-L-E-U-T-E-C, Industries. And there's no H on the end. And their CEO, Robin Botman, is uh, discussing about wind turbine, offshore wind turbine installation vehicles and how there, are, there really is no existing Jones Act compliant vessels. And if you're going to start from scratch, how would you design these offshore wind turbine support vessels? What would you do? And so they've, they've, they have announced what they call the Binary Marine Installation Solutions, BEMIS, which is a very odd acronym, but okay, uh, which has been developed in cooperation with NESCO, Naval Architecture, and Marine Engineering and Netherlands-based Heavy lift expert Penthus, and it's a self-propelled jack-up vessel with a dual crane setup that is supposedly cheaper, faster, you know, does all the good things at, at building and installing monopiles. So that basically it's a monopile uh, focus ship. So you, you drive the monopile on the ground and then you move on to the next one. So it's, it's, it's very reduced in terms of what it does, but it does one job really well. Uh, so there's actually two pieces of this. This is the binary part. <laughs> binary part. There's a uh, a piling installation vessel and a wind turbine installation vessel light. They're calling it. So it's a small version. Uh, and then those two pieces are coupled with. Uh, it sounds like there's support equipment and SOVs that uh, you know <laughs> feed all the people who are who are working on these on these vessels. Uh, but they're talking about Joel. They're talking about a really short timeline. Like the piling installation vessel is possibly available in the third quarter of 2024. So they got about two years to put that together. And the wind turbine installation vehicle, they're talking about the third quarter of 2025. And you have to start cutting steel like now, yeah, to get this yeah. to get this in the water, right? Absolutely. Um, so there's a couple of schools of thought here, right? When the offshore industry started blowing up uh, in Northern Europe, it was first off repurposing old oil and gas vessels to do the things, right? Like, oh, we have this this nice right. here. We can use this. And I mean, I saw tenders flying when I was in the oil and gas world. We saw a lot of tenders flying across for novel sensor technology and camera vision systems and inertial measurement units to try to drive these piles perfectly straight off the side of these vessels. Because that's a huge problem, right? The verticality of that pile is right. uh, is key to the structural stability of the whole um, the whole set asset. So if that so that was an issue, right? Um, and then building these vessels was an issue. So it looks like this company has t taken you know 10, 20, 30 years of watching or, or dissecting the issues that happen in offshore wind in northern Europe, and have kind of developed solutions to to solve all of those things by having this team of vessels mm. that that works together. So I like that. Um, there is also uh, you know another thought of man, we need these vessels now, and you're totally reinventing the wheel. So if you're reinventing the wheel, but part of it is you're going to be able to build them faster to 2024. That's right. great. Because I know some of the, so I have seen some of the um, timelines of these other vessels that they're like, oh, we're going to come over and build this one, the same design. And they're like, oh yeah, it'll be there by 2026. It'll be there by 2027. Um, 
so seven, if, eight, yeah, exactly. So, and, and if we're going to have thirty gigawatts in the in the water by twenty thirty, we better get these vessels out quicker than that. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we, we did see last week um, a couple of the development companies and and asset will be asset owners in the offshore world write a letter to our government saying help with the Jones Act, please, because otherwise we just won't be able to right. do anything. Um, so maybe this is a, another, um, someone someone will come along and in, invest a heavy sum into these things to get them built because they'll be Jones Act compliant. Um, they'll have to be built here in the U.S., right? Um, it doesn't go as far as saying you have to get all the steel here, so some of the steel will come from wherever. But um, yeah. So if, if they can build them quick and the design works... Fantastic! That'll help out our offshore wind in the U.S. Uh, in a in a massive way. Um, it's a little bit uh, brand new, right? So I, I hope they've thought through all the issues and they're not creating new new ones. Well, the the weird thing was on LinkedIn when I saw this article pop up, and, and there's a, a bunch of uh, people on LinkedIn discussing this. Was a couple of comments like, "Hey." There are available vessels for sale right now that could do that same job. I thought, well, that's interesting. And, and sure enough, there are websites that are selling uh, installation vessels, basically big flat bottomed ships with cranes yeah, work on ships, them. Yeah. And a, yeah, they're just workships, right? Exactly. Uh, and they're sitting dry dock. And if you like to own one, it wouldn't take all that much money to get a hold of one and, and move it to where you are. That's a really weird thing you wouldn't think to be an ebay for ships but there's an actually an uh <laughs> a, oh, yeah. a used ship market like buying a used car oh yeah and, and so why why hasn't anybody done that is it because these wind turbines are growing so fast rosemary that the wind turbines are, fa are growing faster than the ships can possibly be built is, is that what's happened <laughs> i I've, I've got no idea to be honest <laughs> i i think well, it's you, so so here's another thought for you so like <laughs> I, i'm comfortable i'm comfortable going and buying a a two-year-old Chevy truck that a Chevy mechanic has yeah. gone through. Yeah. I am not. I am not comfortable buying a fifteen-year-old dirt bike that I have no idea who's owned it, and the top end might be blown up, and all these other things, right? Be because that Chevy truck, I know what it's going to do. I know how it's going to work. I, I know all these things. Right. And the majority of the sh of ships and the secondhand market, they've been cold stacked. They've been you know the, the people went out of business and they just let them rot. All the hoses are jacked up. They don't. Yeah. Because yeah. I've seen I've seen it in the oil and gas world where someone's like, hey guys, we picked up this this vessel for cheap over in Ghana and we're going to go and run this thing out of it. And you get out there and vessel downtime is eighty percent. <laughs> uh, doesn't work, right? And and then you're and then you're again on the same the same role. None of those vessels were built for. There's there's ships that can technically do it, right? But none of those vessels were built for offshore wind installation. All right, driving these monopiles mm. is a very specialized operation that would take a lot of uh, changing those vessels over, and and if the hulls aren't designed for yeah. the right stability with all that kind of cranage on them, and it just doesn't work. Well, it, it's it's going to be a, a real conflict, right? We're coming to the point where somebody's mm -hmm. got to start cutting steel on some ship, otherwise, twenty thirty. It's going to go by the wayside. Am I am I wrong about that? I don't think so. They got no. to do something like now. Yeah, there's some. I mean, there's some players that are making moves, but I think it's more in the, the what I've seen the logistics side of things because logistics are yep. easier, right? It's easier to get a big old work boat and throw turbines on it and move them around. <laughs> or, or right, but the the, the actual monopile po pounding ships and stuff that's specialized vessels. So I know there's some guys in Louisiana starting to to work on some, but I don't know what to what scale. Hmm. Well, you think the Gulf would be easier? Maybe not. Maybe it'd be worse. But, but the shipbuilding prowess down in the Gulf for workboats, because of all the offshore oil and gas down there, is oh, sure. is, is is top quality. And how long does it normally take to true. to, to build a, a ship? Well, I mean, you can put together like a. Uh, so, 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 okay, so have you seen the SVAC boats? The SVAC boats in the North Sea, and they're nice, beautiful, big yeah. red ships with the curved front ends and all this stuff on them, and they're awesome. I think they're, I think they're actually a Norwegian design, even though it's a Danish company. Um, but those, those are fantastic, but those take forever to build because all the steel is bent and moved, and so that one of those vessels can take two years to build. Uh, but if you're just building a workboat, like say Schwest Marine out of uh, Homa, Louisiana, or uh, the Borderland Group up down there, they've been building these things. They'll they'll pawn one of those together in six months. Mm. 
Wow. But but it won't be that pretty, nice, big, fancy, cool hull design, right? It'll be big flat bottom boat with a couple of big old diesels mm. on it and <laughs> and and a and a cab up front and here we go. So so maybe it's just a little bit Yeah, it'll be built American style. <laughs> nothing nothing yeah. wrong with that. Can can you can you barbecue on the back yeah, can you barbecue on the back deck? Set her loose. Dang straight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it is actually early for, you know, maybe no one's building these ships now because it's a little bit early for them to actually be able to, you know, make some money from it. Uh, I, I think that there's other, you know, there's, there's oh, a lot yeah. of other pieces that have to come into play for these, you know, before you're ready to actually start you know, sticking foundations in the ground or in the, in the sea floor. Yeah, I mean, you'd be you'd be better off. If I was a developer right now, I would do what they did on Block Island, and I'd be putting jackets out because jacket installation vessels exist in the Gulf right Mm. now that have been there Mm. forever because that's how they do oil and gas. The monopile pounding ones are the odd ones. Okay. It's a really interesting yeah. topic. I should make a video. Well, Rosemary, <laughs> anyone, anyone listening? Yeah, anyone listening who's got a related company and wants to, yeah, give me, give me access to get some good video footage of this. I think that would be a cool topic to show how, how uh, offshore uh, wind farm installation happens. That would that would be cool. Well, you should also do a video on what we're going to talk about next, which is methanol is winning the hydrogen shipping race, and so ammonia has been talked about as a, as a, as being derived from green hydrogen and as a fuel to power ships, right? It's what's the chemical, uh, uh, it's NH4, right? Uh, ammonia or is it NH3? Do I, did I add a hydrogen on NH3 it? NH3 for Rosemary? ammonia. Okay. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> NH3, so you can make ammonia, which is a liquid, it's a liquid fuel, right? It's got hydrogen in it, so it's a it's not a hydrocarbon, but it it has hydrogen which you can strip off and then use as a fuel. And it has been talked about uh, for powering ships, and also liquid hydrogen has also been talked about for powering ships. The problem with liquid hydrogen is it's got to be really, really, really cold. The problem with ammonia is that it's toxic. Okay, so there's a, a big discussion among ship builders and ship operators, like. What's the fuel of the futures? Because the global shipping industry is responsible for about 3% of the global greenhouse gas emissions at the moment. So they're looking for carbon neutral alternatives. And ammonia has been one of those discussed for quite a while. Uh, But it looks like because of the issues with ammonia and liquid hydrogen that we're going to be moving to methanol. Uh, basically, green methanol. Now, I, I'm putting green in quotations. You can't hear this on a podcast, but I've got quotations up. It's green methanol. And a lot of shipping companies are already moving this direction. I guess Maersk, sorry, is it Maersk or oh, I think Maersk? I it pretty good. What's yeah, the, no, Rosemary? Yeah, your, your first, your first oh, attempt was, wow. okay. was fine, I think, for an English interpretation of good, it. Good work. All we can aim, which is all we can aim for. <laughs> oh, there we it's go. all we can aim for. <laughs> well... You know, we don't shoot too high here in America. So the Maersk is already ex- ex- is expressing a preference for uh, uh, methanol, which is, I, I, this I do know, CH3OH. Take that, Rosemary. Uh, <laughs> which which is produced by combining hydrogen with captured carbon dioxide. So you can make this complicated um, methanol molecule. So methanol is far less toxic. And as we've seen on some recent YouTube videos, and it's probably on TikTok where you've seen uh, ammonia leaks, and if you if you Google that, it's surprising how many ammonia leaks there are every day in the in the world. Uh, I was looking at one from a chicken factory, uh, so it's pretty toxic. And so if you have a ammonia leak, it's a problem. And on ships, I guess leaks are very common. Uh, Rosemary, does this make sense to you? Is there is such a thing as green methanol? And we're, are we going to use electricity to create? <laughs> green hydrogen and turn it into methanol so that we can then power the ships is that where we're yeah it's not really um zero carbon to you know take co2 out of the atmosphere and then um well i guess if you're taking it out of the atmosphere then you are kind of you know getting an extra extra loop loop with the the carbon because it is just going you you burn methanol and you're still going to get that co2 um back in the atmosphere sure um yeah and especially if you're capturing it from a fossil fuel power plant for example then yeah it's a stretch to call that zero emissions but yeah definitely methanol um has the advantage over ammonia that it's not 
not toxic and it's already you know used as a, a fuel it's something that we <laughs> that we know pretty pretty well um so that's fine um and yeah. it has the advantage over hydrogen that yeah like you mentioned that hydrogen is um you have to liquefy it or it takes up a lot less space if you liquefy it to transport it but transport it but then right. you have the problem that um hydrogen boils at such a low temperature that you get boil off if you try and you know transport liquid hydrogen um for a long amount of time i guess yeah um but both uh, ammonia and methanol have the problem that it, you have to do an extra you know if you're starting with hydrogen and then you have to convert it first to um, methanol or ammonia you know there's some some losses in that um and yeah a lot of the times when people talk sure. about oh yeah we'll transport hydrogen as methanol or as ammonia they're not just talking about converting it to those um, those chemicals, they're also talking about converting it back to hydrogen at the end, and then you get you know an extra extra mm. inefficiency. So um, yeah, as long as people are using it as methanol as as a fuel, that's a lot better. And as long as it's for something that couldn't be done with something else, really. So shipping is definitely one of the mm. tricky tricky things to know what's going to work out there's heaps of ways that you can um you know power a, right. a, a ship in a, a green way but the current fuel that we use for shipping is just so 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 cheap it's like literally the bottom of the barrel right it's uh you know it's it's stuff that no that's where it comes yeah, from too yeah exactly it, right no one wants it for anything else it's it's very cheap and so Anything green that I have heard of is going to, you know, make shipping a lot more expensive. So my kind of conclusion on, on shipping is that it's going to it's going to be one of those things where we are going to be doing a lot, a lot less of it um, once it goes green. And I think that will happen naturally because I think like a huge proportion of the world's shipping is to ship fossil fuels. Um, and then um, so obviously we won't we won't need that. <laughs> and then um, I think also we're going to see more like on onshoring of manufacturing so you know like australia just ships heaps of of dirt to um to, uh, rocks to china for processing so instead of shipping iron ore we might ship steel yeah. and Are instead of serious? shipping what, what do you mean that yeah, that's how Australia works. That's how our economy works. Like, you're shipping rocks yeah. to China. Why are you shipping that, rocks to China? That seems like the, the yeah, we most ship, ridiculous we ship thing to dirt ship. To them, rocks. as in the form of iron ore, so that they can process that into steel. And we um, ship uh, like all our yeah. lithium. It's it's rocks. We we crush it. We crush it up. Um, so maybe it's not rocks anymore. Maybe it's gravel. And then we ship ship that, and then they um, they process it process it there and i mean i'm not so intimately involved with what other countries are, are doing but yeah like uh, if a lot of processing happens in china that's because they're getting the the raw materials anything that's not from china they're getting the raw materials and you know in mining you're not seeing concentrations of like you know 50 60 percent it's sometimes for some things you concentrations of one percent or or lower in the in the case of some of the really yeah really <laughs> rare stuff yes. or scarce stuff um so it's huge volumes that get shipped and i think that there's big savings to be made by more but, onshoring of processing especially would, in australia where we have plenty well, of energy wait, wait. to do it um wait, wait. yeah time time out <laughs> well, that's what my question is why isn't if if, if china is going to do that why wouldn't china just build the factories in australia with all the renewable uh, wind and solar that are in Australia, it, that makes zero sense to move the rock. Am I am I crazy? But it's just follow the money. It is for the or for the answer. It... It's not just the money. Um, it's also the environmental oh, okay. impact as well. Um, because some some of these processes okay. can be done much more cheaply if you're not as concerned about environmental regulations. So that makes it more expensive, more energy intensive to do it in a country like Australia or the US um, than in a country like like wow. China. And I, it's a huge, it, it, it's going to be a huge shift over the next few years everyone's talking about it now um and but like we can't just bring the lithium processing the rare earth processing into australia or the us and do it the same way that china is and the way that they're getting their um really cheap prices because that would be unacceptable environmental consequences for um yeah for us so 
yeah, we've mm. we've um, traded off. You know, China has gotten a strategic advantage and sewn up the the market on on many or most of these critical minerals. Um, and the trade off has been we've gotten cheap cheap critical minerals, but we don't have the supply chain security. And um, we also have basically just offshored the environmental problems. So if we want to re-onshore it, then we have wow. to accept it's going to cost more because you've got to take care of the environment. You can't have radioactive waste flowing into um, rivers and um yeah, there's a whole suite of other problems if you just do things in the cheapest cheapest way wow. possible. So anyway, that's a bit of a tangent from. <laughs> so then it is pretty critical from shipping, but <laughs> no, but no, it just tells you how critical it is that the, the shipping industry tries to find a renewable source of fuel for the yeah. ships, right? And mm -hmm. that's the reason why, because you're moving rocks around it of all things. One of the interesting pieces is uh, Maersk. Germany's MPCC and France's CMA CGM have already ordered 26 methanol dual fuel mm. vessels between them. So they can burn the existing sort of low quality diesel fuel and methanol because they're preparing to have it to switch over. And I'm guessing in some parts of the world they use methanol and some other parts of the world they will not use methanol, but they need to have the option to use both. Now, and that's, if you're buying 26 vessels that are built that way that's a lot of cash you're putting down and you're betting on methanol being the future so that essentially wipes out ammonia it's going to essentially wipe out hydrogen because the big shippers have already made the decision in terms of the shipping if maersk is making that kind of move what's everybody else going to do like, they're going to they're going to follow that lead, I would assume. And the dual fuel nature of methanol and and fuel oil or diesel has been around for a long time, right? So if you if you're ever at a gas yeah. station, and this does, you can't do this in other countries, but in the U.S., if you're ever at a gas station and you see someone taking uh, jugs, three, four, five jugs of windshield wiper fluid, and putting them in the back yeah. of a of a tank in a pickup truck, that's a methanol injection kit into a diesel engine, and it will and it will oh, make oh man. It'll make the diesel engine, it'll run on diesel, but it will go from like tw 20 miles a gallon to about 25 <laughs> miles a gallon and increase the horsepower by about 200 horsepower. Well, there you go. They've taken the... Yeah. Windshield wiper fluid. They've taken the American Just... ingenuity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're applying it to huge, expensive ships. Well, there, there you go. go. Well, hey, hey! Some of the best inventions start at the at the simplest ideas, and maybe, maybe that's one of them. Uh, that's good. To, it's it's good to see. So uh, there's just a lot of interesting news this week, and we didn't even get to talk about Boris Johnson uh, stepping down. So we'll talk about that next week. But it's been a, a crazy, crazy last 48 hours. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. <laughs>